Well, hi everyone. Uh, in military terminology, there's a phrase used to describe the most important resource the other side possesses. And if you're in a battle and you destroy that mission critical resource, you'll essentially win the campaign. It's a guaranteed victory. That resource is called a high value target. And I wanna remind you today, fellow Christians, we're in a war, not a culture war, not a political war, not a military war. We're in a spiritual war. And you have a real enemy. One of the metaphors the Bible uses to describe the spiritual life is it's called a battle. But the battle isn't metaphorical, it's very real against a very real enemy. And from the beginning of time and continuing through this day, our enemy, Satan, has a high value target. And he knows that if he can take it out, he can get to the soul of our very movement. He can cripple the work of God in the world. You know what Satan's high value target is? It's family. From the Garden of Eden onward, this has been his number one target because he knows if his lies and his deceptions can destroy our most foundational relationships, he can hold us captive in a cage of anger and resentment and unforgiveness for many years. And for some, their whole lives have been haunted by family trauma or deep wounding. But, but we're often caught unaware and unprepared, ambushed in our own homes. And so today I wanna to call out some of the general schemes uh, that the enemy uses against families and also call out some specific strategies that are, that are current to our time. So it's time for us to ask God to open our spiritual eyes to see the spiritual attacks that are being waged. So the title of my message today is The Enemies in Every Home. We're gonna to go to Ephesians 6 so you can find your way there, but we're in a series called Building Thriving Families. And last week we looked at some of the basics of family. We went back not to an American dream nuclear family blueprint. We went way more ancient than that, back to some of God's original ideas and purposes for families. And we established kind of a guiding definition for the month for how we're gonna think about families. It's borrowed from Jefferson Bethke's book called Take Back Your Family. But he defines family as a multi-generational team on mission. And so we're gonna keep coming back throughout and kind of checking ourselves against that definition. But today, we're talking about the enemies in every home. And I want you to look at Ephesians 6. Paul describes the Christian life in verses 10 through 13 as a spiritual battle. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So, so just like in every other stage of human history, here in America in 2023, our families are under attack. When I talk about family, I'm talking about marriage and singleness and parenting and children and caring for our elders. Like all of these primary practices in the home are under attack. And before we talk about the primary enemies in every home, today I want us to talk for a moment about our actual enemy, Satan, the deceiver. Because I think there are three ways Satan attacks families. The first is discord. This started right from the beginning, Adam and Eve pointing fingers at each other, Cain and Abel's contentious struggle which led to murder. It's discord. Satan loves pitting one family member against another, spouses against spouses, parents against children, siblings against siblings, children against parents. And in discord, he perpetuates a lie that says, maybe I would be better off if I wasn't part of this family. 
We've seen so much of this in recent years with political divisions and COVID disagreements and a lot of Thanksgiving tables will never be the same because Satan has sown discord. The second is distraction. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but Satan tries to keep us busy with unimportant things so that we'll neglect the, the things that are most important like our faith and our key family relationships. And so the lie that he peddles goes something like this. I'll have lots of time to attend to my family's needs later, but for now, this thing needs my attention. Even if this thing is just a hobby or is keeping up with social media or binging a Netflix series. And so often the distraction is far less important than a good and proper use of our time. The third kind of broad brushstroke way that Satan attacks our families is just full-scale devastation. Sometimes Satan wages a full frontal offensive In addition to being a liar, you see Satan is also a murderer. He's a destroyer and sometimes he assaults families with disease or crisis or addictions or abuse or suicides or accidents or other untimely deaths. I I watched this firsthand with my mentor and predecessor here at Grace, uh, Pastor Al Detter and his wife Marie. They They went through like a decade of just full on attack on their family, on their kids, on their ministry and it was it was really truly remarkable to watch his, uh, both of their example of faith through it all. But when devastation comes into a home, there's a lie that usually comes in with it that says, I think God has abandoned us. That the pain is so deep that it seems like there's no way God could still be active and could still be on his throne. And some of you have experienced one or all of these attacks in recent years on your own family. And here's the mistake that so many people make, that they'll experience these things And they'll wrongly assume that a family member is the enemy. That they'll say, well, my husband is the problem. My mom and dad, they just don't get it. I can't stand them. My my sister is the one bringing down our whole family with her negativity. But, But these divisions are not caused by people and they're not caused by politics or personalities. They're caused by our spiritual enemy. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so in the New Testament, that phrase, principalities and powers, refers to the evil spiritual forces that disunite humans from community and from our creator. So these forces are directly related to the enemy of our soul, Satan. And and so you need to know that Satan's agenda for this planet, for this country, for our city, for this church, and yes, for your family, is to divide and destroy. It's the work that he's best at. He's interested in discord, distraction, and devastation. But how... How does he specifically bring those things to bear against families in 2023? For the rest of our time, I want to talk about four enemies in every home. And I think these represent Satan's main modern schemes against families. So here's enemy number one. It's activity, obsession, and relationship poverty. So by the way, I think each of these enemies is applicable to all shapes and sizes of families, including singles and marries and divorce and retired this one included. But I do think it's also particularly tempting for parents with kids to fall into this trap. Like we got get caught up in the whirlwind of activity so easily that that actual relational connection goes by the wayside. We're calling it activity rich, relationship poor. And if we stop and think about it for a minute, none of us would say that we believe this is the best way to operate a home. But, but for many parents, it has just become the default. Now listen, I think experiences and activities for families are really good and really important. It's when those activities begin to take the place of real relationships and relational connection that it becomes concerning. And so many parents have slipped into the mode that just says, well, I want my kids to experience what I never got to. 
Like when I, when I was a kid, we never did, you know, vacations. And so we're, we're going to blow the bank and do them now that I'm a parent. Or I never got to do travel soccer. Or I never got to do dance lessons. Or I never got to go to Taylor Swift concerts or whatever. And so we fill our kids' lives with activities, running from here to there, overlapping obligations and coordinating calendars in a way that would make an air traffic controller proud. Everybody gets the, you know, to the ball game on time and everybody gets to gymnastics on time and gets to class on time and finally gets to the dorm room on time and gets tuition paid on time. But are, but are we having meaningful conversations over dinner together? Are, are we laying in bed at night for a half hour and just talking about life? Because you see, when those kids become adults, it's not their activities, but their ability to be in relationships that will really matter. If they, they never learned how to maintain healthy relationships, they're going to struggle as adults in friendships, and their marriage, in a church, at their job. What tends to happen is that once most parents realize that maybe they've erred on the side of keeping their kids busy but haven't given much of themselves, well, then, then parents tend to overcorrect usually by either getting overprotective and kind of helicoptering over them and trying to shield them from all the consequences, even of their own bad decisions, or they get incredibly loosey-goosey, permissive, and they just let the kids do whatever they want. They try to become best friends instead of parents. And, and you overreact because you're under-involved. So one of the enemies in every home is this emphasis on activities to the detriment of relationships. The second enemy is the celebration of what we'll call me-ism. So, so last week I talked about how the family has shifted in modern times from being, being a team that is focused on blessing the world around us with whatever our family can contribute, oftentimes it was farming or a small business, to, to being hyper-focused on the success of each individual family member. It's me-ism. Bethke says it this way. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a nice and tidy religious family or a rugged non-traditional family or some other version. In the West, we have the same rot festering right below the soil. Same disease, different plants. And that is the disease of self being the most important thing. So when did this happen? Well, as I said, families moved from being kind of the sprawling multi-generational farming family to the, the Norman Rockwell painting family in the 50s. But then after that, it was soon replaced by a focus on this hyper-individualism. You trace, you know, women's magazine covers. David Brooks does this in the New York Times. Up until the 1950s, there was this theme that, you know, love means self-sacrifice and compromise. But in the 60s and 70s, it turned toward putting self before family. That was the prominent theme. So love means self-expression and individuality. The most popular songs at the time among men, men were not immune here, were songs of liberation of self, free bird and born to run and rambling man. It's all about my individual freedom. Well, the same thing happened to marriage. Eli Finkel, a psychologist and marriage scholar at Northwestern, has argued that since the 1960s, the dominant family culture has been the self-expressive marriage. He wrote it this way, he said, Americans now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. So marriage is no longer primarily about childbearing or child-rearing, it's about adult fulfillment. This focus on hyper-individualism has led to trends today of people waiting much longer to be married. Those who are married are having far less children. 
And part of it is driven by this American dream that says, you, you know, you need to be mobile, you need to be unattached, you need to be uncommitted to fulfill your life goals, able to devote an enormous number of hours to your job or to your side gig or to whatever other self-improvement kick that you're currently on. And so the, 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 the message is attach yourself to the fewest number of people so that you can move around to the best job uh, for the best pay, but just stay nimble without putting down too many roots in one place. And, and maybe this approach has led to some career success for, for some folks, but it's also left many people feeling bankrupt, that they're moved away from everybody that they know and love, and this lingering sadness lurks, and there's a kind of emotional vacancy, knowing that most family and close friends are not physically present with me, and my neighbors aren't familiar enough or available enough to lean on during a time of crisis. And this epidemic of loneliness can, can largely be traced back to a redefinition of family life. And because meism has run so rampant in the family system, marriage has become an easy out. If I get sick of you, if, if you're, you're no longer meeting my needs, if it just isn't fun anymore, I can just exit scene left. And because of meism, more and more parents are practically worshiping at the altar of their kids. Whatever the child wants must be right. Whatever the child feels must be right. And we build our family's priorities around the kids' priorities, and pretty soon the tail is wagging the dog. There's no clear mission, there's no clear purpose for our family, there's no, there's no clear reason that our family exists other than to make sure each person is happy and satisfied in every possible moment. And I would just suggest this is an anemic view of family, fueled by a fascination with me-ism. And so we've said the enemies in every home are activity obsession and relationship poverty. Second is the rise of me-ism. Here's the third enemy. Let's call it media invasion. So technology is really good for some things. It's good at helping our lives to be more efficient. It provides advancements in important arenas like medical and educational uh, fields that helps us to survive and thrive. It helps us to acquire new skills that allow us to master the world around us. It even helps us to connect with real people in our lives. What technology is not good at <laughs> is shaping us into the kinds of people we wanna be. And yet more and more technology and media are assuming the role of shaping individuals and even entire families. I wanna refer you to another great book that I'll reference during this section. It's called The Tech-Wise Family by Andy Crouch. It's very excellent. But let me start with this quote. Crouch says, let me put it this way. You don't have to become Amish, but you probably have to become closer to Amish than you think. This better way involves radically recommitting ourselves to what family is about, what real life is about. Our homes aren't meant to be just refueling stations, places where we and our devices rest briefly, top off our charge, and then go back to frantic activity. They are meant to be places where the very best of life happens. No matter what advertising says, even those beautiful tear-jerking Apple ads, the very best of life has almost nothing to do with the devices we buy. It has a lot to do with the choices we make, choices that our devices often make more difficult. So we have to learn how to harness the influence of screens in our homes. You know, 2007 was a key turning point for humanity. That was the year Steve Jobs released the iPhone into the wild. It was right around then when Facebook and Twitter and a variety of other apps made their debuts. You know, the average iPhone user these days touches his or her phone about 2,617 times a day. Young people, uh, even more, and they're on their devices an average of five hours per day in over 150 separate instances of picking up that device. 
Simon Sinek said in a recent interview that our cell phones have the exact same addictive qualities as drugs, alcohol, and gambling. And so when we send our kids, who, who are probably already wrestling with identity issues, into their bedroom, bedrooms to scroll their phones for hours on end, he, he, he says it's basically the same as opening up the liquor cabinet and telling them to have at it. It's no accident then that mental health issues among teens and college students and our whole society really have been skyrocketing. Depression, anxiety, social disorders, that they're all on a meteoric rise in high schools and college campuses. Now, do you know when those trends started? Well, 2007. You see, for generations, the forces that formed a person's identity were things like parents and siblings and peers and schools and churches, extracurricular activities. For most of the adults watching or listening, you know, those are the forces that shaped us. They shaped who, who you and I are. But for every generation since the invention of the internet and smartphones, we, we've opened a whole generation up to, to almost a limitless number of external forces that will shape that young person's identity. There are voices every day through, through that little device that's always with them in their bedrooms, at the dinner table, in the classrooms, in meetings, on walks, in parties with friends, that there's that constant voice that's saying, this is what you need to know. This is who you should be like. This is what you should look like. This is what you better think and believe like. Like there are now, a limitless number of voices shaping their identities. And most of those voices the parents don't know or don't approve of. Those voices bring with them pressures to conform to a certain set of standards that aren't necessarily the standards of the home or the school or the church that that family member belongs to. And media is a different, I mean, it used to be that all news media, for example, prided itself in being unbiased. Its job was just to hold up a mirror to reflect the ideas and beliefs of the population. That is no longer the case. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> the, the media has chosen sides and is now, just based on what you watch, pushing a narrative about what you should believe and how you must behave to be accepted in our society, it is no longer, here are the facts, you make up your own mind. It's now, if you dare break away from these norms and narratives that we are prescribing, you will be canceled and ostracized. If you have an opinion that doesn't line up, like you're in trouble. And young people are feeling the tremendous pressure to conform more than ever. Not only that, social media has become a place for measuring up and for virtue signaling about the, the, you know, the trending issues of the week. And those media platforms that are shaping their minds, our minds, for five and six, maybe more hours per day, have also become a medium to compare. Like, compare your real life with everyone else's filtered life. And so your young people are looking and they're saying, man, if I could just look like that, if I could just have those clothes, if I could have that apartment, if I could get my abs to look like that dude's abs, if I could get my meals to turn out like that dude's meals, if I can arrange my life to fit into this highly contrived world, then I will be happy, then I will fit in. And the pressure on families then is to live up to these standards which aren't even possible for most people. And discontent rules, rules the day. The media invasion has become a conduit now for this fourth and final enemy of every home. Let's call it secular ideologies. It seems every new cultural movement puts the family in their crosshairs. 
in Kate Millett's book on women's liberation called Sexual Politics, she says, the family must go because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women. In David Cooper's book, he's a British physician, it's called The Death of the Family, he says the best thing society could do is abolish the family altogether. And today there are conversations at school board meetings around whether the state is more equipped to raise kids and, 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 and how much of what happens in schools should be shared with parents. For example, a school district in Pennsylvania has recently adopted a policy that advises teachers and staff from informing parents of a child's gender dysphoria or preferred pronouns or bathrooms that they want to use. Teachers are told, keep it to yourself. And so whether it's through social media or at school or a, a news feed or an influencer or a song or a movie, there are these secular narratives and agendas on a constant blast in the ears and eyes and hearts of our kids. I call to mind Paul's warning in Colossians 2.8 where he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And so he says, avoid being deceived by the empty ideas and philosophies of the world. Boy, that might be a, a general description of life in 2023 in the United States. Guys, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. And as the kingdom of this world, I think we can all attest, as the kingdom of this world is advancing, you can feel it because it brings with it confusion and chaos. And there's no spiritual neutral. And I'm watching families with all of these brand new pressures of media and monitoring screen time and an endless flow of information, much of it secular ideologies. And because this conversation of sexual identity and gender assignments has come so quickly into the realm of families who are having conversations with their kids and feeling pressure from others, I just wanna speak about that particular issue for us for a moment of sexual identity, specifically the rise of transgenderism, mainly as a way to illustrate this point. So hang with me because I certainly don't have time for a thorough exploration of this subject, but it does come down to worldviews. And, and how are we teaching our families to think about truth, to think about the world? And I realize it's gonna get people fired up here, okay? But, but there are so many families and parents thinking about this issue that, that I just really think it's important to talk about it. It's one thing for grown adults to make decisions about their sexuality for themselves. This ideology is being pushed into the family space with younger and younger children. You know, there's been a series of studies done in Sweden, a country long known for its supportive posture toward gender transitioning. And one statistic of note from Sweden's Board of Health and, and Welfare was that it confirmed that a 1,500% increase between 2008 and 2018 in gender dysphoria diagnoses among 13 to 17 year olds. A 1,500% increase during a 10 year period. So, so we are living in a statistical anomaly. And maybe it's because it's more accepted in the general population. Certainly there are some mental health considerations, but there's also media pressure and peer pressure forces at play. And this whole ideology that has come to bear. Obviously, I'm a huge advocate for our homes to be loving and accepting places where kids can learn and grow and be themselves. But I wanna remind parents that, that, that all kids go through stages of questioning their sexuality. Just because a little boy wants to wear dresses sometimes doesn't mean much of anything other than that they're going through a normal childhood. But to consider the idea of beginning puberty blockers for a child, to set a child on a course of a series of grueling and gruesome surgeries before they're old enough to, to, to get a tattoo, 
or to get their ears pierced. It's, it, it is insane. Not only that, the, the Sweden study followed sex reassigned people over a 30 year period and found that the surgery wasn't the answer uh, for, for some of the mental and emotional unrest that led them to pursue it in the first place. 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of their comparable peers. Dr. Paul McHugh, professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins uh, University School of Medicine, he explains, because true sex change is physically impossible, in other words, there's no way to physically make it all happen, it frequently does not provide the long-term wholeness and happiness that people seek. And so for many, the surgeries and the sufferings through years of transitioning didn't end up providing the answer that they were seeking in the first place. And our culture along the way invents new phrases like uh, gender-affirming care for, for what actually is, is ripping apart the bodies that God supplied to that person and, and a life that has been altered forever. Now, before I get too fired up with this, I, I wanna come back to my point. Because in the end, this comes down to a worldview issue in the home. Will we be diligent about working out and living out a Christian worldview? And will we be able to discern the different ideologies that are at play in our home? What do I mean by that? Well, a secular humanist worldview says, we are a result of evolution, a series of happy accidents. And so your body is, as one MIT professor put it, a bag of skin filled with biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. Not, isn't that inspiring? Not only that, but your personhood is completely separate from your body. So your body's over here on one side, your personhood is something different over here. And it's a divided view of self, which allows someone to say, I was born in the wrong body. It's, it's actually a demeaning and disrespectful view of the body. And one that says, it's so unimportant, this over here, I can do whatever I want with it. I believe the Christian worldview offers a more beautiful perspective. One that brings unity and inner harmony and wholeness to this whole idea of self. Our view says that God is the creator, that he created each person, mind, body, and soul for a reason. And yes, at times we will feel disconnected from that because we live in a sinful and fallen world. But that doesn't mean that we get to destroy the good gift that God gave us. We wanna honor and we wanna respect God's creation. We want to live in accordance with the Creator's design. And so while we affirm that, that sin and brokenness are, are gonna be part of our existence, we also affirm that God made us with purpose and an adventurous life is one that chases down His good plan for us. So parents, train your kids, value them, teach them, remind them of who God made them to be. Remind them every day that you love them just for who they are. Remind them every day that you are proud of them. Remind them every day that you are thrilled that God gave them to you to raise. But protect your home against secular ideologies. Now listen, today I've laid out some of the problems, the enemy's schemes. Over the next three weeks as we talk about singleness and marriage and parenting, I wanna get on the, the kind of the positive solution side of how we build healthy families. But let me give a little a positive precursor right now. Andy Crouch, who I mentioned before, asks a very important question. And that is, what does family form in us? What is it supposed to form in us? School forms certain things in us, like reading and math. Work forms certain things in us, skills and competencies for how to do specific jobs well. Church forms certain things in us, hopefully things like Bible knowledge and some Christian community. All these different institutions form different things in us. So what is it that family forms? 
Well, Crouch suggests that family uniquely forms us in two things, wisdom and courage. Wisdom is a deep knowledge of the truth. Truth about what? Well, for one, knowing the truth about myself. What is my story? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How has God made me? This is part of processing wisdom that happens in the home. But it also involves knowing the truth about others, learning what makes uh, what matters to them, what makes them tick, what are their hopes and dreams. Wisdom also involves knowing the truth about the world around me, understanding the natural world and the social world. And obviously, wisdom means knowing the truth about God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He's the one who is responsible for all this. And then learning how to hear his voice, how to do his will. This kind of wisdom is not picked up in any other arena. And people also gain a lot of, or don't gain a lot of wisdom in isolation. It begins in the home. It's one of the things family forms in us. So wisdom is a deep knowledge of the truth. But the second thing family forms in us is courage. And courage is the capacity to do the right thing even in the face of fear or shame. So fear for your reputation, fear for safety, or, or sense of self. Will you do what's right? That's called courage. And when there's a lot of social pressures to do the wrong thing, there is no better place to be formed in courage than in a family environment. People who will cheer for you, who will comfort you, people who will send you back out into the battle with a renewed boldness. And, and so I come back to our passage in Ephesians 6. Two times Paul says, put on the armor of God. And the armor isn't so that you can charge out full force into the culture war, slaying anyone with the sword of your opinion who disagrees with you. Notice his posture. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. See, the goal is to, is to stand. It's just stand your ground, to stand firm, to hold your position against the schemes of the enemy. The first step in that is awareness. That's what today was about. What are his schemes? And where do I need to take a stand? Let me remind you today that your spouse is not your enemy. Your wayward child is not your enemy. Your circumstances are not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. And he will use everyone and everything he can to distract and discourage and destroy you. Satan does not want you to live in unity. He, he adores discord, especially in the family unit. He wants to, you to view your family members as your opponents so that you're all so busy firing at one another that you'll fail to form a united front against your true foe. Your family is one of his high value targets. So for today's next step, I'd ask you to do this. Would you reflect on this question? What is Satan's main scheme directed at my family? Is there anywhere you need to take a stand in your home? Have you gotten too activity rich and relationship poor? Is there a me first attitude that you need to weed out? Have you fallen victim to the media invasion, any secular thinking creeping in? My prayer is with Paul, that having done all, you will have the courage to stand firm. Love you guys.